Welcome and thanks for listening to the second episode of the Buell Early Childhood Leaders podcast series. Each month we tell stories from early childhood leaders across the state of Colorado to connect you, the listener, with what's happening in their communities. What are the success stories? What are the challenges? Where can we work together to create opportunities for quality early childhood education? Our topic for this month is a simple question. What are worthy wages in early childhood? This phrase, worthy wages, has become central to campaigns, raising awareness of the financial realities of early childhood education for providers, teachers, and parents alike. While I'll let our guests explain what this looks like in terms of early childhood wages, I want to take the opportunity to set the stage for some statistics just to get the conversation started. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, on average, an early child care provider makes $9.38 per hour. This is comparable to fast food workers who make on average $9.28 per hour and retail sales workers who make $10.29 per hour. To talk about these stats and what challenges look like on the ground, our guests represent individuals who have worked at different levels in the field of early childhood education. Many of them have moved over the course of their career as well, spending time in classes, management, and administrative roles. Our guests today include Tracy Doig, project manager at the Colorado School of Public Health, University of Colorado Denver, and Chutes Medical Campus. Amy Carr, a preschool teacher at Wee Creekers, a small child care center in Cold Creek Canyon. Stephanie Tillman, an executive director at the Family Center, or La Familia. Michelle Macon-Brown, a family and community services team lead at the Clayton Early Childhood Learning Center. And Lindsay Sherman, a consultant for Southwest Colorado, the Incredible Years Program, and Invested Kids. Amy, Stephanie, and Lindsay joined our show via Skype. Before we get any deeper into the data, let me be very clear at the beginning of this show today what the point of the show is. The point is not to compare wages with other sectors, with other fields, with other jobs, to say, for example, that these people and these occupations are more worthy of wages than these other workers over here. Instead, our purpose today is to connect you, the listener, with stories about the real effects of wages in the early childhood field. This means that your takeaway from this program might be different than other listeners because this conversation affects many different people, places, and things in different ways. That being said, if you are to take one thing away from this conversation, it is that early childhood leaders do amazing work and provide a very necessary service. But that's not news to any of you, as many of our listeners are early childhood professionals themselves. Instead, recognize that this is a conversation that the field of early childhood has been having for 25 years without seeing much change. How can stories help us reinvigorate the process, the conversation? If you enjoy our conversation today or learn something new, give us a share and help us spread the conversation. With that being said, let's dive right in. What does the phrase worthy wages really mean? Here's Michelle. When you when I hear worthy wages, I think, you know, if if you're in a different industry doing the same level of work, same intensity of work, same number of hours, you know, days per year, whatever, are you going to be paid a similar rate? Do I think in this field I don't, I, I don't see that. I mean, um, I actually have this conversation a lot with my husband because um, there's other things too. There's other perks that go with other jobs like working from home or he'll telecommute once or twice a week or he'll, you know, he, um, he does flex time or, you know, I mean, it's where he works four tens or something like that. I mean, we just don't have that same flexibility in early childhood. You work long hours and you work a lot of days that throughout the year. Worthy, I think of good benefits. I think of, and that to me includes time off and reasonable hours. Here's Lindsay. So livable wage to me has varied depending on my role. 
when I was the executive director of my own site, livable wage meant what's the amount of money that I can possibly pay teachers to attract qualified staff and keep them for a length of time and also pay the bills. Um, when I worked for Head Start, livable wage was what does this organization need to figure out how, how, to, how do they need to um, generate enough income so that I can be working with qualified staff? Um, because I was not in a role of developing a budget or being in charge of what my staff were paid. I was just the one that needed to manage the environment of the staff in a way that retained them and, um, and you know, kept them feeling good about their work and what they were doing in the classroom. And now, as a program consultant, I have the luxury of not worrying about the money at all, but being able to work in a lot of different environments where teachers um, get paid a different amount of money, and but also the tone of the center or the culture of the environment when teachers feel like they're being fairly compensated versus teachers feeling like they're not being fairly compensated. And what I see in this profession um, is that just as a, the norm is that we're not paying teachers enough money for them to feel good about the work that they're doing um, or for them to feel like they're being fairly compensated for the, the effort that they have to put out on a daily basis. And I think that's a, that's, that's a growing problem. It's a problem that's, that's existed for a long time, but it's getting bigger, not smaller. Here's Amy. To me, um, I guess it being paid what I think we're worth in the grand scheme of society. Um, and I think that what we do is really important because we're shaping the future. Um, and I just think, you know, we should be well compensated for that, and especially when we're required to have degrees to do that work. Here's Stephanie. Well, <laughs> what we've really been trying to look at is, you know, not only how can we recruit highly qualified staff and attract them, but then how can we retain them? Because we know that that continuity of care, if that's not there, uh, it impacts the program on multiple levels, meaning that, you know, it affects the um, optimal learning environment that children are in, as well as the relationships that parents have, the rapport. And then when you look at it from a business perspective, the cost of turnover is huge. I mean, it takes six months plus to properly train someone in the approach and the theories that promote high quality. And then if that person leaves, you know, within eight or nine months, you didn't even give them enough time to apply any of those theories. And all of that background has gone, is lost, and you start from scratch. Lindsay went on to explain that even in addition to the real impacts or real effects of low wages on family households and family budgets, the impact of lower wages affects not only the stress level of the teacher, but also the stress level of the teacher in the classroom, how they're relating and how they're educating in their everyday lives. Lindsay. 
Yes, exactly. Um, and some of that research, you know, points to the stress level of mom and mom's stress level in relation to the stress level of children. And, and those stress levels are, are correlated and measurable. Um, teachers in the classroom provide the same kind of interactions with children. You know, they sit on their laps all day. They talk to them all day. They read to them all day. And when they're carrying a high level of stress, the children are going to feel and experience that too. It also keeps us from accessing those higher thinking parts of our brain. So I see stressed teachers just not able to do as good of a job as teachers who have the resources they need and are not as stressed. They're they're just not able to think forward in a planful, thoughtful way about what's best for their children. Um, Their first concern is, how do I successfully get through this week? Um, and then their next concern may be, how do I meet the needs of the children in my classroom? But when they're distracted by, how do I pay my own bills this week? How do I make sure that my own children are healthy so that I don't have to take a day off this week because I don't have paid time off? Um, then that's distracting from, how do I do my job best? Here's Michelle. They don't realize all of the toll the assessment takes, at least in terms of time. Mm-hmm. They don't realize how expensive technology is. That, that early childhood teachers need technology also, and they need access to high-quality professional mm-hmm. development. So what I, you know, I think if there's some way, the momentum is out there for, and I don't know that what's going to happen if they'll ever get paid more for, for teachers and education across the board, mm-hmm. but I think it, it, the public still doesn't understand that gap. Sure. And, and that they're not just babysitters. So the other misconception is that, you know, it's, it's really babysitting I need or it's childcare. And so I think, you know, separating those terms out for families is critical. And families, you know, like we have chosen to call ourselves a school. We try to refer to ourselves as a school because we don't want to be associated with childcare. And helping the public and families understand that Babies are going to school too. When they're away from you, they're learning, and this is a school for them too. And mm-hmm. these are learning activities, and they're really solid learning activities. It's not just like, it's great, and we try to provide wonderful care to your baby because that's another piece of it that's so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to be nurturing, and we want, but we're also teaching them, and we actually do plan activities, and we plan um, how we're gonna, you know, our entire week and our entire day. And, Talking with our guests this week, it quickly became apparent that in order to recognize the real impact of a worthy wage, we have to look and see how that wage affects the parents, teachers, and caregivers' well-being, and what kind of services they are able to provide to the children in their classroom. Here's Tracy. So we do know that children learn well, do well, everything better when they're eating well and they are, have enough sleep and when they do all this. Same with adults. All that impacts their teaching and, and their well-being as, as a teacher and a leader and a guide in the classroom. So with Worthy Wages, the, the biggest obstacle or challenge that we come across is staff turnover. So staff turnover is directly related to a lot of folks that are really at or below poverty level as well. So the children in the communities we serve, a lot of our teaching teachers and staff are at that level as well. So um, we've seen a huge increase of folks leaving because they don't have benefits. Benefits are not offered part of their program um, or not having enough if they, have a, if they have a full-time job, a full 40-hour job, and let's say they get another job to make ends meet, then they don't qualify 
for some of the subsidies that they're uh, receiving. So it's kind of a catch-22. It's we really want to promote and get them to where they need to be, but then they get other benefits cut off. So I think worthy wages are something that's impacted ECE. For I've been doing this over 25 years. I've been in early care and education, and that has been the biggest challenge from the beginning. Um, we lose people to, who go to banks who make better incomes. Um, Qualis started a study in 2010 stating that aerobics instructors, um, house, house cleaners, um, that were making more hourly, a higher hourly wage than our teaching staff. So that's pretty sad when our teaching staff who are caring for live human beings who are, you know, our, our future America are not making a wealth, you know, a wage that's worth them to be able to take care of their family as well. So I personally just think that um, that if we could make an impact, that would be the area we would need to because then they would not be in that stress mode as well as a lot of our families and communities in early care and education, specifically Head Start. Um, some of our most neediest of families are also some of the teachers who are working in those programs. What Michelle also told me is that even in the issue of worthy wages, the issue is not contained just to the classroom or not just to early teachers or beginning teachers. Low wages are an issue for everybody. And then I think if you continue to go through the, you know, through, well, administrators, people at my level that we don't make very much money, they're not being paid what their counterparts in other industries might be paid doing. I mean, it's hard to compare what they'd be doing, but, you know, in a similar type level in mm -hmm. their agencies or companies or even in the, um, in the public education system. Tracy? did get some, a couple data points. So University of California Berkeley put out a study in 2013, mm -hmm. which looked at the last 25 years and what wages have looked like within early sure. childhood. So adjusting for inflation, um, the $1997 to $2013. 1997, the average childcare worker got paid $9.97 an hour. Today they make $11.48, so a very Crazy. small increase. Right. The average wage for a preschool teacher was $13.27, and today it's $14. 98, which means only 13% increase. Right. Right. Kindergarten salaries have actually gone down. In 1997, they were $22.23, and today they're $21.75. That doesn't surprise me. I mean, all that data is, is true, and it's true data that people have reported in, and I think that is the challenge. It's, it's you're doing this work, and the work that they do, there's so much work. It's not just being a um, early care and education teacher. They are filling out data. They are doing um, assessments on children three times a year where they're seeing how their growth is. They're, like I said, going to continuing education classes. They're doing the same work that a nurse would be doing mm -hmm. who's working um, you know, working with IVs and giving you medicine and it's a life or death situation, they're caregiving for children and required for the same requirements but not making nearly what a nurse would make. So I think that's always been a challenge. And it's not surprising that those numbers have either gone up very little, but most building, you know, most professions, you can have 3% increase. You can rely on like a 3% increase and people can plan for that. Early care and education folks can't ever plan. Mm -hmm. And that puts you in that stress mode of fight or flight. Am I going to just continue doing this or should I go find something else where I can make more money mm -hmm. and then that creates staff turnover for the children and then chaos for the classroom because that really does remove the consistency for children when their teacher doesn't show up on a Monday because they gave notice because they can't afford it mm -hmm. so then the teachers the kids have to learn a new teacher's name a new routine they're new getting used to the system and so that creates another transition for those kiddos and families
To put the issue of teacher turnover in perspective, annually across the United States, early childcare staff in general see a 30% rate in turnover, which means that every single year, 30% of teachers at a school could be new. As Tracy talked about, this affects the child's relationship with the teacher, but also their relationship and comfortability in the classroom, meaning that the issue of teacher turnover due to wages has a huge impact. I don't know if you follow any of the local school district stories, but you know, Jefferson County and Douglas County and a lot of folks, they have not received raises and it's just really because of some of the boards that they have been working with. And so if they choose not to get their teachers raise, it really does impact their morale and impacts them leaving. We lost a lot of teachers in Jefferson County during this last whole, you know, board, uh, what do you call it, board recall. And so I think that's where you also, I mean, if, if your teachers aren't happy, the environment's not going to be happy. You know, happy wife, happy life at home, same thing, happy teacher in the classroom. They need to make sure that they're feeling valued. And I don't think it's always about the money, but they need to, if they're not getting increased wages, they need to know that their work is valuable as well. And so there's other ways of doing that. And I know a lot of programs just really pour a lot of love into those teachers, but it would be nice to have love and money to help them with their families, mm. not just, you know, the cards and the nice things and flowers mm. and stuff. So. Mm. Continuing on the topic of raises with Stephanie. I mean, it's pretty minimal. It's not, um, it's nothing significant that's going to, you know, make you be able to be self-sufficient or, you know, be financially independent by any means, which, um, so that was, yeah. I mean, you could potentially try to take a leadership role, you know, if you were promoted to like a director role. Um, but then it's like you have to be really ready for that. One story that was very common in the interviews that we were doing with our guests on today's episodes were the stories of individuals, friends, co-workers, themselves sometimes, who had actually left the field over the, how low the wages were. One of the side effects of low wages is that not only do we see large turnover numbers in the classroom, but we actually see numbers of teachers leaving the field entirely. Lindsay. Absolutely. I mean, I would have stayed in the classroom longer as a teacher if I had been paid more money, for sure. I, I moved out of the classroom because I was a single mom, and and 15 years ago, I, I could not afford to be a classroom teacher and be a single mom. Yeah, so I looked for what else I could do um, to stay in the field um, um, and make enough money to support myself and, and my son. Yeah. We've really raised the bar with what we require of teachers um, in regard to college coursework and experience, um, and and yet the wages really haven't changed. So I think that um, that that's kind of where the the current crisis is happening to. Twenty years ago, you could have a minimal amount of experience and a minimal amount of um, of college education and and work in a classroom as a preschool teacher, and. And now we require teachers to really have a solid professional development plan and, and to continue to, to take um, college-level education to stay certified as lead teachers in the classroom. But we're not really paying them um, any differently. So we're, it's important, I think, for us to be headed in that direction of kind of professionalizing the field, um, but the wages need to reflect that too. Another story we heard quite often during our interviews on the topic of early wages for this episode was that there's a misconception of what early child care professionals actually do, how much work they put in, and what hours and dedication they offer to their occupations. 
this is one of the reasons why a lot of individuals felt that wages were low is because there's a misperception about how valuable the work is, but also how much work is actually done by these early childhood educators on a daily basis. Amy. I think society in general doesn't place a high value on education um, from birth, you know, through college. It doesn't seem like that's a priority for us. Um, a lot of people say it is, but no one ever, I guess, puts their money where their mouth is. <laughs> and um, all of us are seeing that. I think early childhood, we see it even less because um, people just think, oh, you're just playing and having fun all day. You're just, you know, the babysitter making sure my child doesn't die. And, you know, that's not really what we do. We are teaching and children are learning even if you don't see that until they're five or you don't see it until they're two, you know. I think it's just a general attitude. Here's Michelle. I, I, when you ask me that, I'm thinking about, like, different audiences that might have different misconceptions. Sure. sure. So... I think the biggest misconception is how expensive it is to provide high quality services. And we are very committed to that at Clayton. And so um, I think that's a misconception across the board in the community. Um, not the community of people that work in the field. <laughs> and I think there's definitely a movement nationally and even you know with business owners and things like that, that this is something to invest in. Mm -hmm. But I still think broadly, people are um, shocked, honestly, if you really give them the figures. I mean, it's as expensive as college education at an at a in-state public university. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it really is. And um, so I think that's the biggest misconception that's still out there. I think it's getting better, but it's still out there. But I think the other misconception is that quality early childhood education is, is critical and is important. And so I think for families, you know, it's hard for them when they can pay, you know, a really a lower rate at one place and it's going to be more expensive at another place. And, you know, they're toying with, well, you know, what's best for my child? And I think, you know, helping families understand what's really important and in terms of what you're looking for in an early childhood center and why that's so important is something I think that's a gap, in, in, and mm -hmm. I think so families don't always understand. And they have to do what's best for them, but I think families, you know, when it comes down to, I've got to put food on the table, or I want to have a quality home life, too, with mm -hmm. my children, and, you know, mm -hmm. it's and, and that's a big sacrifice I think families have to sometimes make. Stephanie? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, one of the challenges of my job is always having to build that awareness and having people, you know, not only see it as a profession and the importance of it and how, you know, um, what a great opportunity it is for children to have a great beginning to life. But there's, what I also found is a lot of people think that it's not someone else's role. So there's a lot of old school thinking in the sense of, you know, someone else shouldn't be raising like they're you know someone else's child that's a parent's job so that also is really hard in my job to try to talk about um families that have different situations or living circumstances or how poverty can affect families and their children's situation and so it's not only a perception that you know kids are fine just put them 
you know, in a room with some toys with some supervision and what does quality look like, but also who is that really, whether it's government's role or school's role or early childhood provider roles. Another key area of conversation or interest to the question about worthy wages correlates to the larger high cost of early childhood in general across the state of Colorado. If you listened to our last podcast about family, friend, and neighbor care, one of the things you hopefully took away was that quality early childhood care is expensive and often beyond the reaches financially of a lot of parents and families and communities around the state of Colorado. The question is then, if the costs of early childhood education are so high, why aren't teachers getting compensated at a higher value? Lindsay. So the hidden costs are, are, um, are what, it, what it takes to, for kiddos to get a high degree of quality. They need to be in a facility that's safe and up to code, and those codes change all the time. So one of our, one of our really big overhead costs was, was the facility that we were in. If you're looking at um, communities like my community, Durango, our real estate is, is really expensive. So any place that you get that's conveniently located is going to come with a, with a high rent or, or a high real estate cost. Um, and I think that that's the same in a lot, well, I know that that's the same in a lot of other resort communities in Colorado. Um, there are places, of course, where you can get a, an affordable site. But for most communities in Colorado, um, what you have to pay for rent or, or what you have to put out to purchase the property um, is, is, is expensive. Um, but the ratios are, are really important. So, for, for instance, babies to be getting really good, high-quality care, um, they need to be experiencing a ratio of about three infants to one teacher. So, when you think about three infants, at, even if a parent was paying $100 a day, mm-hmm. and, um, and that translates into $300 a day per childcare provider, once you take out all of the overhead costs, not including a staff salary, you're still looking at, um, at a staff salary that's, that's barely a livable wage. And, and I think that that's, that's pretty easy to see once you start looking at the numbers. It, um, most childcare centers that, that I work with have a preschool program that's offsetting the cost of their infant and toddler care. So infant and toddler families, even though they're paying a lot of money, they're not really paying what it costs. But the preschool classrooms are offsetting that cost. It'd be really easy for us to end the podcast right here, giving you five different accounts of the impacts and the real stories of worthy wages within the field of early childhood education. But that would miss a really amazing opportunity to catalyze, have a conversation what the next steps are for early childhood education. What we're not going to give you in this podcast is a complete solution, a complete answer. We've only got about eight more minutes of you on the podcast with us today. What we do want to do is connect you with the active conversation that the individuals we interviewed are having about worthy wages and early childhood education. To get us connected to that conversation, which we hope this podcast has done already to some extent, we want to give you answers to the question of what does success look like in the state of Colorado or across the United States in terms of worthy wages. What does a solution look like? What does a progress step look like? What does an action look like that allows us to get to a point where we're offering teachers, early childhood educators, and staff in general access to worthy and just wages? 
It's a really important step for us. We think it's a really important step for our audience, and we think it's a really important step for all those in the field of education to recognize this as a conversation that's happening, a conversation that needs to keep moving, and a conversation that's an opportunity for collaboration within the field of early childhood education. So again, I'm an outsider to the field. How often do individuals in the field have this type of conversation around wages? Or is it kind of something that's understood and we don't want to talk about it? it I mean, it doesn't seem like the happiest conversation to be having around the water cooler. Well, I think, you know, we just actually did a data dialogue with some of our staff, um, our family services staff last month, just looking at like, um, well, when, we're getting ready for a site review, so we were asking some questions that are on that protocol. One of them is like, what does your agency do to att attract and retain talent? You know, high quality teach, teaching staff or whatever. And it was, you know, I heard a lot of what I'm saying to you, passion, da da da. But first thing the first person said was, it's pretty simple. It's you know, you got to pay people to keep them around, and you've got to have benefits, and and benefits are something too that. Um, probably, you know, need to be a part of that discussion because even though I said we have good benefits for the, the first individual, you know, like for the employee, but once you start adding on people, it gets really, really expensive. And that is something that with larger corporations, things like that, larger school districts, things like that, doesn't cost that much. So, you know, I can insure a family for a reasonable amount. It's not going to be like a pay cut. So for, for our staff that have families and need insurance, you know, it's not a livable wage. But, you know, how often do people talk about it? I don't know. And it's it's weird. Like, there's a new PDIS, Professional Development Information System, at the state um, for early childhood. And there were some questions in there about, what's your salary? Well, many of us, so we did have a conversation about it just maybe a month or so back, because a lot of us were like, did you put your salary in there? And everyone's like, I'm not putting my salary in there. They're going to think they don't have to give us any more money if we put our salary in there. Um, and then somebody came along and said, well, no, 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 it's because they want to help, you know, they want to get a good picture and then they can help advocate. But nobody's really trusting from these state and federal sources, or at least people I talk to, aren't really trusting that that's what they're going to do with it because they hold the purse strings now. So if it looks, you know, and so pe uh, most people, most of my colleagues I know didn't even enter it. And so because, because of that reason, like, not sure what you're going to do with that data. And so you can, so people are cautious. There's a trust out there, like, you know, we're already not making enough money. They're going to cut money. They think people are getting paid too high or, you know, what's going to happen here? Success. Uh, you know, and I, I do think that it's something, if they could have a wage that they could rely on and depend on that was respectable for what they do. So all of the stuff that we put on early care and education teachers, like collecting data, filling out paperwork, doing assessments, you know, sitting in on special education meetings, doing professional development on their own time, paying for classes on their own time, paying them a worthy wage that makes them not stressed. Because having a stressful environment and a stressed out teacher does impact a classroom. And then that trickles down to them leaving the field, giving notice, and then creating another transition for, for children in the classroom and families. So something that's sustainable, yes, that may, I would want to make sure that, that they could plan for it, so they could plan for themselves and their families. Because right now, I don't think that anyone can plan. They don't know.
base giving them oh my gosh if they got a bonus that would be you know and I don't want to tie it to children's performance I want to tie it to what they are doing that what their commitment is you know how they are, are, are preparing their classroom ordering their materials getting these kids ready for kindergarten reading writing I mean recognizing their names those type of things and if if they could know that they could get a bonus I guarantee you most of the teachers would probably try and put the money back in the classroom we'd have to convince them that that's yours you get that money you get to go you know maybe do a weekend with your spouse or husband or partner you get to actually go do something with the money versus most of them they get extra money and they put it in the classroom they're at the Dollar Tree on the weekends buying more stuff to support the kids and families so I think that is in just building their self-esteem I think you know hand in hand just giving everyone a voice and just saying hey you're, things aren't going to change unless you start to you know, take an active role in getting noticed, getting national attention, getting state and local attention. So. That's our show for this month. We thank you once again for listening to this, the second episode of the Buell Early Childhood Leaders podcast series. If you want to get in contact with us for any reason, if you want to give us feedback, if you want to get on the show, you think you have a story that's not being told and needs to be told to the rest of the network, please email us at becklandpodcast at gmail.com. That's B-E-C-L-N podcast at gmail.com. Or you can always visit the Buell Early Childhood Leadership Network's group site. That's buellecl.groupsite.com to learn more about the podcast, to get connected, or to get information about bios and of Buell leaders who are featured on our podcast series. Next month, make sure to keep checking us out because we have a new podcast being released at the end of every month. Episode three of this podcast will focus on educators, policymakers, and classroom trainers for the Pyramid Plus Early Childhood Framework dedicated to increasing inclusive education and making sure the early childhood education classroom and field is accessible to all different students with all different learning needs and all different learning supports. Thanks once again for listening to podcast today. Our podcast today was produced by myself, John Denzler. Um, thank you once again to all of our visitors and all those who chose to be interviewed or agreed to be interviewed on our podcast this week. We look forward to hearing more from you. Our music this week was brought to you by BO Crew. We appreciate them letting us use their music. And we look forward to hearing you at the end of next month, continuing conversation about making early childhood education affordable and accessible to all in the state of Colorado. Thank you and have a great rest of your week.